Psalm 146, the Word of God says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Friends, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you. Please be seated. I didn't plan for it to say, your God, O Zion, but it's really fitting to be here at Zion Presbyterian Church and uh, to urge you with that from Psalm 146, uh, providential indeed. Well, for those of you who don't know, many of you do know our family, we served in India for about six years, and when we moved to South India in 2010, it was just two of our two children, we have five children now, uh, two young kids at the time, a two-year-old and an eight-month-old, and our first week in settling into our apartment in South India after lunch, my wife put the kids down for a nap, and I went out to explore. Um, in Bangalore, where we live, there's lots of shops everywhere. Everything is around you. It's not spread out like suburbia here. And so I was just walking out to explore the neighborhood in the afternoon, wandering into tiny little shops, the food shop, the electrical shop, uh, the pharmacy, which they call the chemist. And everywhere I went in, my fellow Indian community would say to me, have you had your lunch? And I'd say, oh, yes, thank you very much. Next shop, have you had your lunch? Oh, yes, thank you very much. And so I went back to my wife and said, these are the friendliest people. At Four or five people, I think, wanted to feed me. They asked me if I'd had my lunch, and they're just really friendly. And a couple weeks later, as we started language class, learning the local language, Kannada, we learned the phrase, uta aita, which means, have you eaten? Is your meal finished? And we learned that that's just a standardized greeting. That's what you ask someone. You know, in the South or here, we say, how you doing? Well, in South India, they say, have you had your lunch? And they're not really trying to feed you. No one's actually offering you a meal. They might be concerned that you're doing well. And in a traditionally subsistence culture, if you've had your lunch, if you've had a meal, you're doing pretty well if you've eaten that day. But they just said it thoughtlessly. You've probably had the experience of greeting someone with our normal thoughtless greeting. How are you doing? And you're really not asking for an explanation of their life. Sometimes someone will launch into that, and you're probably thinking, hey, I really didn't mean that. <laughs> I was just being friendly. I don't really, not that I don't care how you're doing, but that's not what I was asking. There's another Indian tradition among Indian pastors, especially Indian village pastors in the poorer parts of town. And when an Indian pastor greets another Indian pastor or someone like me, they say, praise the Lord. And that's the first thing they say when they, well, they shake hands because I'm a Westerner, you would bow. But they would say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And that actually kind of bothered me a little bit as I got to know it. I, I don't judge anyone's heart. 
I hope that as they said that, they actually meant it, that there was a, a thought to that, that it wasn't just a thoughtless greeting. But for me, it would very easily become a thoughtless greeting, probably a violation of the third commandment to not take our Lord's name in vain. You know, if we're good Presbyterians, we know that our calling is to praise the Lord, right? If I was to ask you the first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? You could all answer the chief end of man is to? Yeah, glorify God and enjoy him forever. To praise him with our life and lips and to do it joyfully, not as a burden. But the question is, as quickly as most of you could confess that, how is your life conforming to that? Is your life in a general direction where you are leaning into all the resources of God's matchless grace towards you, that more and more that might be true of your life? That it wouldn't just be something that you could spout off because you've been catechized well, but that you were actually making that your aspiration. Indeed, Christ redeemed us for that great end. We are redeemed freely by God's grace in Jesus Christ so that by his spirit he may more and more grow us so that we would delight in and glorifying and enjoying or praising our God. To be a Christian is to be growing in our life, in our lips, praising the Lord. But how are you doing? Are you giving attention to that? Is that the drive of your heart? Did you repent about that when we had a chance to repent in our liturgy just a few moments ago? Well, friends, our Lord, because he loves you, he wants to give you grace to grow in your purpose, which is to praise the Lord. And that's what Psalm 146 is all about. It is God reaching into us through his word to give us strength, encouragement, motivation, power to grow in our praise of him. A life lived joyfully to his glory. And so I want to spend a few moments and I want to encourage you from Psalm 146 this morning to promise to praise your Redeemer. To promise to praise your Redeemer. And though that is a command, I want you to understand what the great Augustine said, that the Lord in his grace gives what he commands in Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us the grace to keep that promise, to praise our Redeemer as we look at Psalm 146, I want us to look at this through three steps. You can see the outline on your, in your bulletin, uh, just under the sermon. We're going to look, firstly, at how we're called to preach to our souls to praise our Savior in verse 1 to 2. We're going to see there's a community element and a personal element as we preach to our souls to praise our Savior. And then he's going to hone in on something that was already brought out in the liturgy that Marcus uh, helpfully pointed out from Psalm 146.3, we often have substitute things that we trust and praise. And so the second step of the psalm in verse 3 and 4 is to help us perceive the inability of human saviors, including ourselves. And then once we are aware of those, the final step is to praise the Lord for his saving reign. And we're going to see in verses 5 through 10 in our third point that God has a, a multitude of reasons, a multitude of things that he does for his blood-bought people by grace, things that cause our heart to find joy and praise and imitation. So let's look at our first point, to preach to our souls, to praise our Savior. Did you notice in Psalm 146 that the first three words of the psalm are also the last three words of the psalm? Praise the Lord. Beginning of verse 1, the last part of verse 10, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, the word hallelujah. We say that a lot as Christians, right? We say it kind of thoughtlessly, probably. Hallelujah. Now, when we say hallelujah, we think 
Praise the Lord. You know, we just sing that song, you are the one that we praise, you are the one we adore, lyrics that are very much focused on who God is. Most of us, when we say hallelujah, we're thinking that way. But when the Hebrew says hallelujah, it's thinking this way. To Texanize it, it would be y'all praise the Lord. It's not actually a direct expression, hallelujah. It's a, a command that God's people and those who are not God's people would turn to God and worship him as creator and redeemer. The law is the Hebrew verb to praise. The ooh part in hallelujah is the imperative, the second person command, and Yah is a shortened form of Yahweh. So you praise the Lord. You probably don't realize that when you say hallelujah, you're supposed to be encouraging one another. We need each other. We need each other to praise the Lord. The Lord in his grace has given us to each other as a local community that we might stir one another up to praise the Lord, to say the hallelujah into one another's lives, to encourage each other. And think about what we do in worship. Some songs in worship, we are directly ascribing praise to God, like the one I just mentioned, or you think of a psalm, a famous hymn, like Holy, Holy, just directly focused on praise. But did you notice that a lot of the songs we sing are not directly talking to God, they're speaking to one another? Think about the most famous hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace. If you think about it, we're not actually directly talking to God. We're telling the story of redemption, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And we're speaking it to one another. We're basically telling each other as we sing those type of songs, hallelujah, you praise the Lord. This is who he is. This is what he's done for me. This is what he's done for you. Let's praise the Lord together. And we need each other for that. The Christian life was never designed and cannot be lived on its own. We are part of the body of Christ, literally. And we're called together. We're called to be together. That's one of the reasons our Lord's Day gatherings are so absolutely vital. Not only in obedience to the fourth commandment to rest from our labors and to gather, but we need them because we can't fulfill our calling to praise the Lord apart from each other, stirring each other up with the means of grace through the word and prayer and fellowship and encouragement. It also means that we are to be encouraging each other in our personal conversations. Hey, what's the Lord been doing in your life lately? What's God doing? Or maybe just sharing, hey, God blessed me in this way. You know, I was praying and the Lord answered me in this way. Or, you know, I've been just seeing this in God's word. And I've been so encouraged as I've been reading in Colossians in my Bible study time. We need each other. God has given us to one another that we can say the hallelujah to one another. One of the ways we do it in our regular family worship is that almost at the beginning of most of our worship sessions, my wife and our five kids, we just stop and we go around and each one of us just tells one thing that day that we're thankful for. One way we've seen something beautiful about God and his word. One way we've enjoyed something in his creation. One way we've seen him answer prayers. Just something where we're stopping and we're essentially saying hallelujah to one another. This is what God has done for me. Would you join in worshiping our God together? And this psalm says we need to Hallelujah, each other. Encourage each other. Praise the Lord. And God has given us to do that. But notice that the second part of verse 1, it's not just encouraging each other. Notice that we turn from speaking to one another in the hallelujah to ourselves. It says, praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmists have turned from speaking to one another to speaking to themselves and stirring themselves up. But why? What is our greatest enemy to praising the Lord. 
Is it the world system out there that's opposed to God? Is it Satan and his rival kingdom? Well, yes, those are great enemies, but you know where your greatest enemy is? It's right here. It's your sinful flesh, your sinful heart that is sluggish, that receives manifold blessings from God, and you're like, This heart is not always overflowing to delight in the God that you confess who's been so good to you in Jesus Christ. And the scripture says we need to preach to ourselves. We need to preach to one another, but we need to preach to ourselves. We need to say the hallelujah inward and say, soul, you have reasons to praise your God. He is your maker. And if you profess Jesus Christ and you do know him, he is your savior by grace and grace alone. We have manifold reasons to praise the Lord, and sometimes we really just got to preach to ourselves because in our unbelief, we tend to think, man, God's not been as good to me as that person. Is God really have my concern? Is God really so glorious? We look at the things of his creation, we think that's glorious. We see an attractive person of the opposite sex, that's beautiful. We see something in creation, that mountain's beautiful, those green trees are but we're really slow to see the beauty of God who is far more beautiful than anything he's made. And so we have to preach to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British doctor and great preacher, had a book called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he said this. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Your unhappiness is that you're listening to yourself, your unbelief, instead of talking to yourself the gospel of grace, the goodness and beauty of your creator and redeemer, instead of listening to Psalm 146.1 and say, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Friends, are you listening to yourself or are you talking to yourself this morning? God in his word is encouraging you to talk to yourself. Talk to yourself about your God and how glorious he is. And notice that it's not just an occasional, it's not just Lord's Day, it's not your devotion time and then you go about the rest of your day. He amps up the, the desire in verse 2. It's not just that I'll praise the Lord occasionally. Notice the vision of verse 2, the aspiration. I'll praise the Lord when? As long as I live. As long as I have breath. I will sing praises to my God when? While I have my being. In other words, everything I am is to be centered on delighting in this great God, worshiping him, enjoying him continually. Continually. And that means even in the difficult times in life. Even when your world is crashing around you. Even when you want to have kids and you can't have kids. Even when your kids have gone astray, I saw a brother at my home church as I was dropping my family off there, and his young adult son has recently professed and given in to his homosexual desires. He's professed to be a believer his whole life. That's hard on a parent. When the diagnosis comes, when you wake up in pain each morning, when you look around the world and you see its brokenness, Praise the Lord, even then. Because after all, this comes in the context of the Psalter where most of the hymns, that are, I'm sorry, most of the Psalms are not these type of things. Most of the Psalms are lament Psalms, crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? And yet the paradox of the Christian life is that these things are not devoid of one another. They actually intermingle. 
Paul who talked about having unceasing anguish in his heart for non-believers, who, who said he always had the concern of the churches on his heart, also said, rejoice in the Lord always. He described himself as one who was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In one sense, as believers, we know the depths of depravity and sin greater than non-believers around us. It's worse than they think, and we know it, and we should feel it, and we should cry out to God at the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our hearts and the brokenness of our families. But even then, we can praise the Lord and should praise the Lord by his grace. I mean, I almost hesitate to mention him because he's overused, but Job is an incredible example of this. The man who just got the news that he lost all ten of his children, his great wealth is gone, and he's left with a wife that's going to tell him to curse God. And when he hears the news in Job 1, he, he in ancient Near Eastern form, rips his clothes and gets in sackcloth, and it says that he bows down, and he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of great grief was still worship and trust and delight. The Christian life is one of joyfully praising the Lord, even in the midst of lament, even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of brokenness. Our lives are meant to be looking forward because what? We know that God is going to make all things new. God is going to redeem every situation for his blood-bought people. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to right every wrong. And we grieve, but we also rejoice in hope because of who our God is. There's a song that I grew up singing a lot in a Baptist church, and we do sing it in Presbyterian churches on occasion. I sang it in one a few weeks ago. It always bothers me. The song Blessed Assurance by Fanny Crosby. You know the song, uh, the phrase that was repeated is, this is my story, this is my song. You remember the next phrase? Praising my Savior all the day long. If you've ever sung that hymn, does anybody else feel like a hypocrite when you sing that? <laughs> if you're thinking about the words, is that really true? Is that my story, my song? Am I praising the Savior all the day long? Well, not me. I want to be. I want to be, but I'm not, and no one is. None of you are either. Yet we're called to. There's an aspiration here, and I think the psalmist knows when he says that I will praise the Lord, it sounds like a commitment, but it's a commitment to repent in that direction, that this is, by God's grace, the movement he wants to go towards, that increasingly, though not perfectly, he will seek to praise the Lord as long as I live, to sing praises to my God while I have my being, because that's what he's made for, and that's what he's redeemed for, and friends, that's what you are made for, and if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith alone, that's what you are redeemed for, and it is the direction that we are to repent towards and ask God's grace in and find joy in. And if you're thinking, man, Richie, that sounds like a burden. That sounds like a burden to constantly be trying to praise the Lord. Then you don't know the Lord. You don't. Now, you might can admit that it's hard and sometimes it's, it is feel like a burden. But if you think, man, that's just pure burdensome, you don't know the Lord. Because the Lord, when he works in our life, when he causes us to be born again, he helps us to find delight in God. And obedience is not a burden but a joy, though sometimes we find it that way. But in general... And so, friends, the psalm comes to us in verse 1 and 2 and says, we need to preach to our souls to praise our Redeemer. 
And it's about to go forward and give us lots of fuel for that. It's about to give us a a manifold reasons because it's going to fixate our eyes on who our God is. But before it gets there in verse 5, before it gets to the good stuff, if you will, verse 3 and 4 come. Because the psalmist knows that there is a, a praise substitute that we often put in the place of the true God, and it's mankind. He's going to urge us, before we get to how good God is, secondly, in verse 3 and 4, to perceive the inability of human saviors. Look at verse 3, a text we've already encountered in our liturgy. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. That seems maybe disconnected. He's talked about praising the Lord. Why is he all of a sudden turning us and telling us not to trust in princes? Well, the reason is there's an intimate connection between what we trust in for ultimate matters and what we praise. Praise and trust are intimately connected. It would be very right for him to say, don't praise human princes, a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Trust and praise are intimately connected. I mean, we're... Most of us are citizens of the greatest country in the world, we would say, America. With all its flaws and all its problems, most of us are very thankful for our country. We're proud to be Americans, we might say. Why? Because we feel like it's the strongest nation in the world, maybe greatest freedoms in the world. We, citizens, boast of their country. Whenever we get a lot of money, you know, whether there's a a gift, a financial inheritance, a new job, a promotion, why do we rejoice? Because we tend to think, man, if we have these resources, we're secure. There's happiness to be found there. We rejoice when we get in better shape and we, we post it on social media when we cut down a few pounds or bolt up because we think that our appearance will gain us something with other people. We praise that which we trust in and what we look to. And the Word of God knows this, and so it warns us of the very common enemy of trust in the Lord, which is trust in God's creation, trust in mankind. And notice who is not to be trusted in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. Now, don't think, like we think the term prince, like son of a king. Don't think Prince Harry right now. Princes, this is another word for kings. And kings in the ancient Near East were unparalleled. The closest thing you could get to a a king in the ancient Near East today would be someone like a Kim Jong-un, a dictator. Someone who's on their very word can say, hey, that person dies and they die. An ancient Near Eastern prince had the power of life and death in their hand for those under their charge. They were unparalleled. They were the greatest of human beings. And the psalmist is saying, you can look at the greatest human being you could conceive of, the greatest political leader, the most powerful king of the greatest empire, do not trust in them. Put not your trust in them. Why? Look at the second part of verse 3. Because they're a son of man. And the Hebrew word there is not the typical word for man, ish. It's Adam. Adam. They're a son of Adam. If you're a C.S. Lewis fan, he often refers to human beings as the sons of Adam, reminding us of our frailty, our connection to the first man, Adam. He's a son of Adam. He's a son of man. And what's true of people in verse 3? In whom... There is no salvation. There might be some measure of temporal salvation, but not ultimate salvation. They cannot be depended on. Why? Because notice what they're subject to in verse 4. What every human being, even the greatest human being, the great equalizer, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. 
On that very day, his plans perish. The greatest kings, maybe Alexander conquering the ancient world, living it up. And at what, 33? In his 30s, gone. And his plans perish. His kingdom breaks up into four pieces and then more. They all die. Whoever you put your trust in, they will ultimately die. They have no power. On that very day, their plans perish. I think when I read verse 3, I can't help but think of Genesis 3. Or Genesis, when I read verse 4, his breath departs, he returns to the earth, the son of Adam. Turn back to Genesis. Do you remember the curse on our first father and on us by our covenant connection with Adam as our federal head? As God is doling out his curses on the woman, on the serpent, and on man, he says in Genesis 3.19, notice this language, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is so much in the background of Psalm 146.4. Even the greatest human beings are under that curse. They will return to dust and don't trust in them on that very day. Their plans will perish. I also think of a parable that Jesus told to this account. Turn forward to Luke chapter 12, if you would. Luke chapter 12, verse 16 to 21. There, just a second. Luke 12, 16. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself. Now, notice here, I'm going to stop here. Notice the self-talk. We've been encouraged to have self-talk to praise the Lord, right? To trust in the Lord, to praise him. Notice this self-talk. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, remember he's talking to himself, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, he's talking to himself, and he's talking about, about to talk to himself again. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you. Many years, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But look at verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared Whose will they be? This man preached self-reliance, trust in his resources that he had, and it was foolish because on that very day he would die and it would all go away to someone else. And so the Lord warns us, don't give in to the wrong kind of self-talk. Don't put your trust in mankind and man's resources, money, power, looks, intelligence, wisdom, jobs, being well-liked by others. Friends, what kind of human saviors are you looking to instead of God the creator, God the redeemer, and Jesus Christ? For you, are you just hoping everything gets better in the next political year when the next person is elected to president or next Congress? Are you looking to the next job? Are you looking to your bank account, your financial security? Are you looking to the fact that you're well-liked? You've got this great fitness plan, and you're going to look better than ever. You're going to get another degree, and you're going to be smarter than ever, and everybody's going to look up to you because of the initials that come after your name. Perhaps more deadly, are you looking to yourself and your own righteousness to stand before the holy God? To think I'm a pretty good person, at least I'm better than that person, that group. I read the Bible. 
I'm coming to church. I give some money in the offering plate. I'm a pretty decent person. Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Maybe you're a non-Christian here today, a kid who's grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you're someone who's an adult and you know yourself not to be a Christian and you're exploring Christianity and you've got this idea that Christianity is some good advice on how you can save yourself and be a good person and be right with God. Friends, if that's you, then I have to warn you that put not your trust in princes, put not your trust in mankind, even if that mankind is yourself, because you can't avert death and you can't avert God's judgment by your own efforts. You must cast yourself wholly on the mercy of the one who's calling us to praise him, to praise him precisely because he is a God who saves and redeems by grace and grace alone. Friends, it's really important because if we find ourselves struggling to praise the Lord and we call ourselves Christians, a big part of that is because we are looking to something or someone other than our God. And it's vital that we perceive the inability of the human saviors that we are trusting in. And once we see that, then we can begin to look at the manifold reasons that we should praise the Lord for his saving reign. And that's our third point. That's verse 5 and 10. Notice the contrast, this warning not to trust in even the greatest of men. But here's the person who's blessed in verse 5. Here's the person who's happy. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. That's where blessing comes. Help and hope is talk of salvation. And the God who's revealed himself as the covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage, for us, the God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a Roman cross and raise again from the dead, who has ascended up into heaven and is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. This God, blessed is the one who trusts in this God and thus praises this God. But notice the end of verse 5. It's not just this God who's revealed himself in history, acting in powerful ways. It's those who've taken him to be their God. Notice the the personal pronoun at the end of verse 5, whose hope is in the Lord, his God. Those who personally trust in the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's so great about this one to trust in? Why trust him instead of human princes? Look at verse 6. The beginning description, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This is the contrast with mankind, the son of man. It's the creature-creator distinction. All that we might trust in in humankind, they're just made, they're dependent on someone else for breath. And they're actually under the curse and they're heading to become dust Contrast that with the God of Jacob, the God who's revealed himself in history and saving activity. This is the God who made heaven and earth by the word of his power, the sea and all that is in them. This is the God who created and rules. This is the one that we are to put our trust in. Now, before God was ever creator, he was just the God who is, the triune God, a a father loving his eternal son by the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. There was a time when the God who is just is, but when he chose to create out of his free will or the overflow of his love and desire, he became the creator. And there's a great distinction between him and us. He made everything by the word of his power, and we are absolutely dependent on him. Notice the second part of verse 6, who keeps faith forever. 
I think this is talking about this creator God, our God's providential rule. I don't think it's necessarily firstly talking about his covenant promises to Abraham, but in context of creating heaven and earth, it's the fact that he sustains it. You could turn to Genesis 8. We won't turn there, but after the flood, remember there was a promise made that as long as the world continued until judgment, there would be springtime and harvest. God wouldn't flood the world again. He would be faithful to allow things to continue to go on, that he would rule over them. Our scientists call them the laws of nature, but they're just the faithfulness of our creator, God, who rules and is faithful to his word, who's continuing this world because he is so gracious. He has a plan to save sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, those that he's chosen from eternity past, those for whom Christ died on the cross, those for whom the Holy Spirit is going to apply the work of redemption to. And God is being faithful to sustain this until the end. He could bring his judgment. He could let it all go to chaos, but he's faithful. He's ruling. And friends, he's the one you should trust in instead of mankind. I can't remember if I've told the church this story before. If you've heard it before, forgive me. When I was in a seminary, I worked at a place called Interstate Batteries, and we, I worked in a warehouse, a bunch of seminary students, and we would often get done with our work ahead of time, and there was no more work, and our boss would let us go play basketball in the warehouse for an hour or two. And so we had eight or nine guys, and we'd play basketball, and during March Madness time, we made our own little March Madness, a two-on-two tournament, and uh, we'd just make a bracket and pair up and play and have fun during the afternoons. We had one guy who was going to seminary who was actually played college basketball on a scholarship. And uh, he wasn't that tall. He was only about six foot tall. His name was Clay, but man, he was good. Uh, he, he was way better than all of us. And we realized after a while that whoever team Clay was on never lost. We're like, we began to think, scratch our heads like, you know, has Clay ever lost when, you know, four on four, three on three, two on two? We're like, no, he hadn't. So we came up with this idea during our two on two March Madness tournament. We were going to take the worst basketball player, which was this little Indian guy who was about four foot eleven, five foot, who could barely dribble a basketball, and we're going to pair him with Clay, and we'll see what happens. Well, you can probably guess what happens. They won the tournament even with the worst basketball player. Why? Because Clay was on his side. And man, my friend, my other guy's a friend too. He's actually a PCA guy. Uh, he talked so much smack. <laughs> he didn't do anything. Clay won everything. But if Clay was on your side, you always won. The psalmist is saying, look, who do you want on your side? A son of Adam who's going to return to dust? Or the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth? The one who keeps faith forever, who sustains everything by the word of his power? The choice should be clear. And not only is this powerful creator, providential ruler, powerful, he's good. He's a savior to his people. Look at this description of him in verses 7 through 9. I mean, point after point of what the Lord does for his people. He executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. What's the point of all that? I mean, if you think about most of those scenarios, other than death, those are worst-case scenarios. Those are like when you're at the bottom of the bottom other than death. You're in famine, you're falsely in prison, you're blind, you're a sojourner, a refugee, you become a widow, your husband's died and you have no one to care for you, you're fatherless, your parents are gone. 
I mean, these are worst-case scenarios, and there's a, a manifold number of them. And the point is that God is such a powerful redeemer, no matter how bad your situation is, he will in time act for his people. He will save them. Maybe not at that moment, because after all, people are in these situations. And God calls his people to wait upon him, but he promises eventually he will, if you will, show up and he will deliver his people so that we can praise the Lord even when we're going through the situations of verses 7 through 9 because we have hope that our God, who is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, has chosen to be our redeemer and he will save us from whatever dire strait we're in. It may not be right away, but oh friends, it's coming. I have a wife, my wife Kelly, who's not here today. She's at our home church. She's 46. She's been in dire pain since she's nine years old. She has this crushing arthritis. She had to carry a cane today to church, to walk into church. She hurts every day of her life. It's just a matter of where and how bad. And I long for that. I lament that. I grieve the fact that my wife hurts every single day. But I also rejoice because there's a resurrection body coming from my beloved bride. And sometimes it seems like it's going to be forever, but in the blink of an eye, our afflictions here are momentary and light in light of eternity. And God is calling us to look to what Christ will do for his people. I mean, think about all the things that we see here in verse 7 through 9. Isn't that a beautiful description of what Christ did when he was here in his earthly ministry? Wasn't he giving food to the hungry? setting prisoners free, those imprisoned by Satan, executing justice for the oppressed, opening the eyes of the blind, lifting up those who are bowed down, upholding the widow and the fatherless. Aren't these descriptions of our Redeemer? And what he did in his earthly ministry, just in small part, is a preview of what he will do when he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords on that great day and raises up with resurrection bodies those of us who belong to him by faith and renews our world and takes care of every dire, straight situation that our messy world is in. That's what's coming. The Lord will do it. Notice how the psalmist emphasizes this. In verse 5, he talked about God as creator, and he uses all these relative phrases, who made heaven and earth, who, who executes justice. But notice what he does at verse 7. He could have kept using those relative phrases, who, who, but instead he emphasizes, and at the end of verse 7, it's the Lord who sets the prisoners free. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. At the end of verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners, and that's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. That's why it's capitalized in your English Bible. The God who's made covenant. It's that God, and he drives home that point. We can trust him because he's that God. He's the servant king. Look at verse 10. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. You see, he's contrasting two types of kingdoms. He's contrasting the kingdom of man in verse 3 and 4. They're princes, but what do most human princes do? They look out for themselves, for their interest, most of the time. But look at the God who's described as king in these verses. He looks out for the interest of his people. You could say he's a servant king. God who blesses and cares for his people. 
And when Jesus came, he came as the servant king. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. No surprise that King Jesus is described that way. We have a servant king who is for his people, for those who trust in him. For those who abandon trust in human saviors, even the human savior of self, and cast themselves on the God who's revealed himself in scripture. What is our response? It's praise the Lord. Our response to this is hallelujah at the end of verse 10. Y'all praise the Lord because you have connection to this God if you believe in him by faith, if you've put your trust in Christ alone. And friends, as we focus on this, as we worship our God as he's revealed himself to be, then praise comes forth. As our faith is built in his promises, what he promises to be for his people, then we will obey the injunction to praise the Lord, to repent towards praising the Lord as long as we live. We will offer him the praise of our lips, but you know what we'll also do? We'll offer him the praise of our lives. Look at Ephesians 5.1. Ephesians 5.1, as it talks about the redemption for those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. You know, they say that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. We might say that imitation is a form of praise. You see, friends, when we worship the kind of God who's described in Psalm 146, this God who cares for those who are the least and the lost in the hardest situations, we become like that. Not only do we praise him with our lips, but his grace has worked in our lives, and increasingly we reflect that in our lives, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships to our lost communities and world around us. I mean, if you look at the things that the Lord does in Psalm 146, Things like executing justice for the oppressed, giving food to the hungry, watching over the sojourners, upholding the widow and the fatherless. All these things that God does are commanded of God's people, especially in the Old Testament, but even in the New. How does God often do these things? Through his redeemed people. God often executes justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, watches over the sojourners, upholds the widow and the fatherless through you, his saved people by grace. And so as we delight in our God, we worship him, we praise him, and then we reflect his character in our dealings with one another and with our broken world. And so we must not only give praise with our lips in our public worship, but tomorrow give praise to your Redeemer as you go to work, as you care for your home. If you're a student, as, well, no school, summer session, <laughs> uh, when you're in school, as you obey your mom and dad, as you care for your community, as you engage with people around you, praise the Lord not only with your lips, and you should, but with your lives, because that's what you were made for, and that's what you were redeemed for. A friend of mine, Barbara, lived in Frisco. A little over a year and a half ago, her and her husband, Steve, got terrible news that Barbara had a very uh, deadly form of cancer. She was pretty healthy up into that. In her late 50s, her and her husband, godly folks, go to Sister PCA Church. Her husband, Steve, used to come to India all the time when we were there to serve with us. And they were just a couple, away, a couple years away from retirement. He made good money. He was going to retire at 61, 62, and 
serve the Lord and enjoy their grandkids, and they were starting to have grandkids, and Barbara got the news that she had a very aggressive form of cancer. And 50% of people who get this diagnosis are dead within a year, and then the remaining 50%, another 50% are dead in two years. So in two years, 75% of people are dead, no matter what treatment. And I remember texting Barbara and saying, Barbara, how are you, how are you handling this? What's going through your heart? And she says, you know what, I just, I just want to glorify God through this. I just want to praise him. He's good, I'm going to trust him. Just pray for me that I can be healed, but pray more than anything else that I can glorify the Lord. And her husband, Steve, said the same thing. And this was, there was lots of tears. <laughs> there was lots of sadness. But throughout the year and a half, there was lots of, I just want to glorify the Lord. I check in, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. The Lord is good. I just want to glorify the Lord. At the end of last year, around December, um, I was texting Steve, checking on Barbara and saying, how's Barbara doing? And he said, we're, we're going to have to go down to MD Anderson. She's having some really strange symptoms. Uh, we're going to go down there and see if there's something they can do. She's really struggling. They go down to MD Anderson, meet with the doctors, and he looks at him and says, there's, there's nothing left we can do. He's like, you're going to go on hospice, so you probably have a few weeks left to live. And Barbara's response to this doctor says, that's okay. I know Jesus. He's been good to me. I know where I'm going. It's okay. And Steve was relating to me. I was down there at the hospital to see them. He was relating to me that the doctor was just taken aback. I mean, he gives people diagnosis like this all the time. That's what he does. He's an oncologist. And he was shocked by her response. I mean, think about all the things she's losing. Think about the grief she'd have towards her husband and new grandkids. Why could she look death in the face and praise the Lord in the midst of that? Because she knows her Redeemer. She knew all that he'd promised to be for her. And on New Year's Day this year, early morning, she went home to be with the Lord. And Steve has continued, her husband has continued to praise the Lord. And she lived her life to the end, to the most difficult part of her life, with lots of suffering and pain, leaning in on God's grace and repenting towards Psalm 146.2 that she would praise the Lord as long as she lives and that she would sing praises to her God while she had her being. And by God's grace, she did. Friends, I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. I don't even know what today holds for you. I don't know what next week, next month. You're not guaranteed a long life. You might die on a car ride home. But what I want for you even if life turns upside down next week or tomorrow or next year, is that you would know your God so well through Scripture that you would see how much he's promised to you in Jesus Christ that even in the midst of sorrow and difficulty that you would praise the Lord as long as you live because he's worthy and it is the thing that will bring you the most joy. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. And before I pray, I just want to give you a few moments of silent prayer to respond to God's word. First of all, I want to give you a moment, maybe just to repent, just to own up to the fact that the first part of our psalm is not true of you often, that often the burning desire of your heart is not to praise the Lord. Would you take just a few seconds and just repent quietly, silently? Next, would you think about the human saviors that you're tempted to look to, whether your own righteousness, your job, your money, your country, your friends? Would you take a few moments in those things that God has convicted you about that you tend to put your trust in instead of him? Would you confess that to him as well and ask him to root that out of your lives?
Take a few moments of silent prayer about that. Finally, would you think about what we've seen about our God in these final verses of our psalm? Would you spend a few moments just praising him for the holistic redemption he's bringing us in Jesus Christ? Would you pray that uh, he would open your eyes to delight in that, to live in light of that, and to reflect that? Just take a few moments of praise and petition silently. Our gracious Father in heaven, thank you for feeding us with your word this morning. Psalm 146 has been a feast. We're so thankful for the reminder of our life's purpose, which is to praise you. We're thankful that you've convicted us of those substitute things we trust and praise ourselves, other human beings. And we thank you that you've given us ample reason to praise you because you have promised a holistic redemption for our holistic mess. Lord, we live in a world that is under your curse. We deserve your wrath for our sins. Our world is broken. And we are so thankful that you have acted in the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, heavenly session, and his soon coming. We're thankful that we have the promise that all these things that we've read about, he will take care of when he returns. And that until then, you empower your church to reflect that in our lives, to imitate you. And so we pray, Father, that you would continue to work in our lives so that we would be a people who are repenting towards praising you with our lips and with our lives. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who you've given us because you've not left us alone. You've not left us as orphans. You sent forth your Holy Spirit that we can do what you command. That in our union with Christ, your Holy Spirit applies his work to our lives. Give us confidence in you as we go out of this place. And grant that the rest of this day and tomorrow and next week and next month that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that more and more we would praise you with all that we have and all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.